This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show Dr. Blue Double X. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to your science on a Sunday. This is Fuzzy Logic broadcasting for you on 98.3 2XX FM right here in Canberra. I'm very excited to be here today. We've got a whole lot of uh, miscellaneous stuff lined up for you today. A bit of science from everywhere. We're going to be talking animals. We're going to be talking a bit of online dating. Uh, we've got some frogs in here. And I think I've even got uh, a few things on space too. We're going all over the place today. And to join me in our expedition into unknown territory, um, we've got Ben sitting across from me. Good morning, Ben. <laughs> good morning, Broderick. How are you going? I'm, I'm good, mate. I'm good. Uh, look, yeah, I, I'm... It's a different sort of show today because we are going a whole lot of different stuff and I'm excited to get into it. But look, we should start off the way we always do, which is uh, this day in science. Today being the 20th of February, what's happened on this day in science, Ben? Well, on this day in science, back in 1937, the first successful automobile airplane combination was created and ready for testing. The first flight took place the next day on the 21st of February 1937 and it was actually built by the Westerman Aeroplane Corporation of St. Monica, California. This vehicle was dubbed the Aerobile and claimed a top airspeed of 120 miles per hour, although it could only do 70 miles per hour when travelling on a highway. This airplane was designed by aero engineer Waldo Dean Waterman and it evolved from the prototype aeroplane, a project to design a simple, easy-to-fly, low-cost aeroplane. The Studebaker Corporation, which supplied the 100-horsepower engines, eventually took delivery of five of these machines. Now, I mean, that's a really great idea to come up with, you know, the simple sort of airplane. I'm surprised we, we don't have them. You know, just extendable wings from the car. Yeah, I can't wait to see them around. Uh, and if uh, if you check out the innovations uh, that you see from different prototypes and corporations, there are all kinds of advancements in the very important field of automobile aeroplanes. <laughs> yeah, well, but we still don't have them on the road. That's my disappointment, you know. It's the future. Where's my flying car? Yeah, the other one I'd like, Brod, is uh, the James Bond-style underwater car. You know the car when you're escaping from a helicopter full of baddies and you have to drive off the pier? That's okay because your car becomes an underwater underwater car. Now, it was in, uh, I believe it was 2008, a company, uh, a group got together and called this contraption the Scuba. It was a fully submersible vehicle that could drive around underwater. Now, unfortunately, these guys... I don't know whether they designed it on a Friday or something like that, but it was actually convertible. <laughs> so in order so, to drive this underwater, you'd have to take your scuba diving equipment down. Which kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? But um, I suppose, yeah, maybe those air bubble issues and everything like that, maybe that's why it's a convertible. Surely there's got to be a good reason behind it. Either way, I, I think that we need to have more of these things to make our life more interesting in the, um, the, the general population. Uh, but getting back to this day in science, uh, also on this day in 1972, uh, John Glenn piloted the Mercury Atlas VI Friendship 7 spacecraft on the first US manned orbital mission. So it's the first time um, they'd sent a person out into orbit uh, in the US. This was launched from Kennedy Space Center, Florida. 
And John Glenn completed three orbits around the Earth at a maximum altitude of about 162 miles. So we're looking at uh, about... 350 to 400 kilometres away from the Earth and uh, going at a speed of approximately 17,500 miles per hour. So looking at... um, Oh, my maths is going to fail me here. (laughs) (laughs) What's that? Half again would be... Well, look, we're looking about 27,000, 30,000 kilometres an hour, I think. Um, He spotted Perth, Australia, um, from this orbit when the uh, city's residents greeted him by switching on their house lights in unison. Pretty good sort of greeting from the sky. That would be pretty cool. Um, Also on this day, a four-cent US stamp was put on sale uh, in the US uh, commemorating the occasion, and that was actually the first time a stamp was issued on the day of the event it commemorated. Hmm. So there you go. Um, Glenn returned to space 36 years later after the 1962 mission, in 1998, making 134 more orbits as a crew member of the Space Shuttle Discovery for investigations on space flight and the ageing process. Hmm. Pretty interesting stuff. Pretty amazing man. Wow. 134 orbits. I mean, that's a huge amount of times around the Earth. Many more than other people, I'm sure. I wonder how long that actually takes. Well, he was up there from um, the 29th of October to the 7th of November. So that's, what's that, just over a week. Mm. We go 134 times around the Earth. Yeah. Yeah. No stops on the way. I think that's why it's a lot quicker than um, plane flights and that sort of thing. <laughs> well, Brod, also on this day and also in space, 1986, the Soviet Union launched into orbit the Mir uh, space station. This was a new space station, obviously, back then, and... The Mir space station, Mir, is the Russian word for peace. Now, it had six docking ports, it had special laboratories for scientific research, and uh, they set it off into uh, orbit. And weeks later, they then sent up a veteran crew to man the the station. It was about 56 foot long and 13 foot wide. Now, the module, uh, the core module of the space station, actually provided the living quarters for the cosmonauts. They had things like a galley table, cooking elements and storage, individual uh, crew cabins and personal hygiene areas. But the space station also had a complete range of all of those spacey things that you would need for monitoring and commanding the core system. So it was supported by electrical power, thermal control, computer systems, environmental control and life support, communications and tracking systems. Now... Along the MERS lifetime, they actually sent up five additional modules which were launched between March 1987 and April 1996. At this stage, the space station was actually the largest orbiting man-made satellite around the Earth, and this continued until its deorbit in 2001, um, and it was eventually surpassed uh, these days by the International Space Station, which is a, a little bit larger. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So if you can imagine being up there just inside this this one uh, structure for so long. And in fact, we might talk a little bit later on today about um, the experience of being in space and, and being in such a confined space for a long time and an experiment that's currently underway um, over in Europe. But we'll get to that later on today. Also on this day in science, there are a few um, interesting inventions patented, and they were all painted, patented on this day in 1872. Now, there's some interesting stuff here. There's a, a vertical-geared hydraulic electric elevator, so basically first sort of elevator cable suspending and operating the elevator carriage from the bottom or platform and a 
Also safety devices to prevent a fall if the suspending devices should fail. Uh, so that's back in 1872 we had that. There was also a toothpick manufacturing machine that was patented, uh, and this allowed a block of wood with little waste and in one operation to be cut up into toothpicks ready for use. And uh, also on this day, a flat-bottom paper bag-making machine. Um, now, this machine allowed for the bags... That's the flat-bottom on the paper bag, not the machine. Mm. Um, but it allowed to, for the bags to have two uh, longitudinal inward folds and basically the standard sort of paper bag that's still used, probably more so in uh, the US where they pack their shopping in paper. But um, that machine was patented in 1872, still used to this day. It's a huge advancement in, yeah. uh, in technology. Well, actually, the interesting thing is the guy that um, invented that one, rather than uh, using, um, rather than playing with uh, uh, woodwork and that sort of thing and building stuff as a child, he actually enjoyed folding paper. Mm. <laughs> and so, obviously, that's where he got the idea for this sort of paper bag from and uh, decided to give it a go. Yeah. So that's what's happened this day in science, and... Um, very interesting stuff, but I suppose we should jump to the uh, present now and have a look at some research that's actually been going on in the world. And last week, if you're listening in, fuzzy listeners, uh, it was myself with Murray and Nat talking about the science of love for Valentine's Day. <laughs> and um, we had a lot of fun with that. We really did. Uh, but I, in my research this week, there was uh, something that came out on a Tuesday after Valentine's Day talking about dating. And uh, comparing online dating to, to real-world dating. Oh, no. Now, is this something I should have known before Valentine's Day? Well, d I don't know. What's your normal modus operandi, Ben? Do you, um, well, how, how, do you, how do you pick up the ladies? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not too sure about this whole internet thing. The, uh, the intertron, the web, it's, it's a little bit uh, confronting for those of us who, who are used to just talking to people. Yeah, you, do, you don't even have a Facebook page, do you? Shh. <laughs> All right, well, so you're going to go for the more traditional. Me, I'm more on the Facebook. I haven't tried online dating, but um, this research out of the Queensland University of Technology uh, by Dr Zoe Hazelwood is really interesting because it's basically found that uh, traditional in-person dating and online dating are, in fact, very similar. Out of the School of Psychology and Counselling, they found that... Um, you know, things like nonverbal communication, which is really important when you meet someone in person, you know, you read their body language, their facial expressions, all those sorts of things. Um, it's just as important in online dating. Hang, hang on. Nonverbal cues are just as important in online dating? It's... it's, it's nonverbal is an interesting way to put it, but it's, it's those other things that aren't what we're actually saying. So when you're looking on online stuff, you're looking at things like spelling errors in your, what you've typed, uh, the use of acronyms, the amount of exclamation marks, your use of grammar, little things like that. Uh. Because, you know, if you look at someone's writing style and you don't like it or you feel they've got poor spelling or something like that, that might kind of put you off and, and, and encourage you, oh, I'm not going to go after them. They're a bit of a, you know, they're not my mm. sort of person. But someone else might be more interested in, in expression, free expression, and, and not so much concerned with trivialities. Like that's spelling. right. That's right. And as yeah. long as you get the uh, the ideas down there, then they're happy to read what you've got. So it's it's those differences again. Another interesting habit, um, certainly present in uh, in-person dating, is the tendency to present your self as uh, just that little bit more interesting than you actually are um mm. you know rather than just saying uh, you're a cleaner you say you're a hygiene standard inspector or something like that um yes yes yes, yes. <laughs> I've, I've done this uh, kind of thing before actually i was uh 
I was a volunteer at a, a very, very lovely festival in Victoria a couple of years ago, and uh, by the time I, I volunteered a little bit late, they said, we've, we've got one position left for you if you're on beautification. I said, that's fantastic. That, oh, that means picking up rubbish. But uh, it was a fantastic job and a fantastic uh, festival. Yeah, oh, good. well, people certainly do that in their relationships too, and I think... Um, so online people stretch the truth about themselves when they're trying to put themselves out there and, and they do that in person too. And, um, and, you know, I mean, the reason people do that is because later on if the person actually starts to like them for who they actually are, then the small things that they lied about at the start of a relationship don't really matter so much anymore. One of the, the most interesting things I uh, found in this research was that... Uh, the online dating participants stretched across a huge range of ages. Um, in the research, one of the participants was actually a 76-year-old female, and uh, she and her partner, who were the same age, met online and are now getting married. Wow. So they are, So everyone, Ben, um, even if you are slightly computer illiterate, um, you've got the chance to use this technology and make the most. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's in person or online. It's still kind of the same sort of thing. Yeah, well, I made a resolution to learn how to use computers this year. And if online dating isn't that different to uh, real-world dating, perhaps there's hope yet. I might might give it a shot. We'll see. Stay tuned. <laughs> Definitely give it a go. And uh, speaking of online, if you are on the web and uh, enjoy Fuzzy Logic, why not join us on Facebook? Uh, just log on and type in Fuzzy Logic and you'll see us there. Click like and you'll get all the updates for our shows and what's going on in our fuzzy little world. We're going to take a little break now with some music, and when we come back, we've got a special guest coming to us from Sydney uh, to have a chat to us about the wild, wild world out there. The time is 11.53, and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra. And today, we are joined by a very special guest from Sydney, uh, Claire Ferrugia, who's going to talk to us about uh, some of the wild animals out there. How are you, Claire? Hello, Broad. I'm very well. How are you? I'm, I'm doing doing very well. It's great to have you joining us from Sydney. Well, uh, it's fantastic to be here. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> now, you've got a couple of animals for us and a new animal. Like I didn't think we were still discovering new animals. Oh, we are. We are. Well, last year, as you know, it was International Year of Biodiversity and they were keeping account on how many animals that we were discovering, how many new animals that we were um, finding. But um, this one is of particular interest, probably because um, it's just a little bit weirder than your average animal. Oh, yeah. And, um, um, weirder than your average bear. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's my very exactly, point. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's even weirder than, like, a talking-hatted bear from um, <laughs> Yellowstone Park or whatever Yogi Bear was. It's yeah. even stranger than that. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's it's called the vampire flying frog. And um, so, as the name suggests, um, it's a vampire. It's a new vampire on the scene. Okay. Does it, it, does it sparkle? No, it doesn't sparkle. Oh, okay. It isn't six foot four. Okay. It doesn't have those dreamy eyes and go by the name of Edward Cullen, <laughs> as I'm sure a lot of um, your listeners would be familiar with that particular vampire. Mm. Um, no, this one has actually been recently discovered by Jodie Rowley, who's a scientist from the Australian Museum um, in Sydney here. Now, Jodie often makes expeditions over to Vietnam where she goes in search of undiscovered species of amphibians so everything that we don't know and um, there hasn't been a lot of research being done in Vietnam um, 
about the frogs and the amphibians. So um, she's really in a, in a, in a very specialised area. And what she found recently with the vampire flying frog, it's a real rarity. So just to give you a bit of a mental picture, if you can imagine, the frog is probably around five centimetres long. It has um, a bright orange back and then it's white on its belly. And um, these little dudes, they only ever live in trees. They don't come down to the ground very often. Oh, okay, so like, because mm. aren't most frogs amphibians? So they're in and out of the water. Yes, it... yeah, they are. So um, they have a, a sort of life cycle that allows them to be both in the water and out of the water. So their tadpole life cycle component, they they spend in the water, and then their frog um, lifestyle or <laughs> the lifestyle of the frog, frog yes, the um, very, is, is very often... relaxed, laid back, <laughs> riveting lifestyle. <laughs> Pretty laid back, hanging around in the trees, and um, and because it's in a cloud forest, it's it's a really humid environment, so they can they can exist out of the water as well as in the water. Okay. Um, but these little guys, they have these these webbed feet and toes, which they use to pick up from one tree and then glide around to another. So they're always gliding between trees, which gives them the flying tag. Ah. So this explains the whole flying part of the vampire flying frog. Yeah. Um, however, it doesn't really explain the uh, vampire component oh. of this. Although, in some vampire movies, vampires can fly. I know I saw this Swedish movie um, the other day called Let the, White, Let the Right One In, and that vampire in that could fly. I, yeah, well, I, it's, it's the, amazing. Ones, the ones that I've seen, they could, could turn into a bat or something like that. Oh, like, yeah. right. Mm. Mm. So not not like those webbed toed variety of vampires. No, I don't think we get many webbed toed mm. vampires, Ben. Um, no. <laughs> but I'm, I, I'm, I well, just need to do. know the mystery. Yeah. The, the plot thickens. Why is this flying frog referred to as a vampire? Is this something to do with Jodie? Does Jodie like vampire films too? <laughs> that could well be the case, but there's there's a more um, there's a more taxonomically um, and anatomically correct reason for it, Ben. Um, it all comes um, by looking at the tadpole um, life cycle. Uh, now, Jodie, once she discovered the frog, she discovered the tadpole as well. She took the tadpole back to her lab and checked it out under the microscope and noticed that it had these minuscule, strange little curved fangs on it. Wow. Yeah, so this is a tadpole with fangs, like... Uh, it's pretty much the first tadpole that they've ever found with these fangs. So, oh, so at the moment, they're not exactly sure what, what function and what purpose they well, serve. Not having done any scientific studies myself, we can only presume that uh, these tadpoles goes around to, to normal tadpoles and, and want to suck their blood. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, but strangely but, enough, yes. she, she, she did um, find them on a, on, on a full moon. Or, or oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. The werewolf swimming frog. Then a vampire bear. Oh, yeah. Who okay. changed yeah. it? <laughs> Maybe it's a cross of the two somewhere. <laughs> um, but one of, one of their theories that they're tossing around at the moment is that the frogs, um, the frogs that raise the tadpoles in, um, in tree trunk water holes, oh. um, they often feed their young by laying unfertilized eggs as meals. So, so that's, that's what other frogs do. So they'll lay a couple of eggs um, that are fertilized that'll grow into little tadpoles and then they lay a whole lot of other eggs like we get chicken eggs or something like just that, just as a um, nutritional 
uh, delight mm. or the little mm. tadpoles. So these fangs could help in slicing them open or something like that. Um, which I think is is a, is a pretty good theory because yeah. it sort of fits with the vampire name, you know, slashing open other eggs and other sort of tadpoles. I mean, it's it it sort of fits. It isn't it isn't the the best vampire fit, but. I think we're getting there. Yeah, I, look, I think this is the makings of a Hollywood movie, to be honest. <laughs> I can just see vampire tadpoles. Um, There's classic little things. Oh, yeah. Computer animated. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, Disney can make them look cute and lovable, and then the teeth come out and they bite yeah. in. Oh. Yeah, exactly. The I poor think... misunderstood vampire flying frog. <laughs> oh, and it's flying, um, flying mother and father. It's just... It's just amazing how we're still finding these animals in these remote places of the world and 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 pretty amazing to think what could still be out there really. Yeah. If if yeah, if there's a vampire flying frog out there, um I think there could be anything. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, you know, and it's not like it's a tiny little creature or anything. I mean, 5 centimeters is a decent size. It is. Um, it's amazing we haven't seen them before. Mm, it is. It, it really is. I imagine that um, would prob- the local Vietnamese communities would probably be more familiar with them, but in terms of you know rigorous scientific taxonomic description, um, <laughs> this is this is the first time. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think a vampire flying frog is a, a fantastic description for it. Um, it is. It'll certainly it get really people is. hunting for them, I reckon. Mm. Um, maybe going out with their wooden stakes and um, seeing if they can catch a few. <laughs> No, we're speaking, not going to do that. No, no. no. But, but but speaking of um, hunting and um, you know extinction and all those sorts of things, which we normally associate with um, rare animals, mm. I have another story. This is a good news story. Oh, so good, good. Don't 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 worry too much. Um, yeah, it's it's all about an animal that has come back from extinction, and they have a special word for these animals. They're called it's it's called the Lazarus effect. Ah, yes, after Mr. So Lazarus, Mr. Lazarus in the Bible. Yep, 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 after the Lazarus in the Bible that um, was uh, resurrected. So are these animals, they they believe they're extinct, or we believe they're extinct, and then they come back from extinction. Um, and this one is an Australian animal. Um, it's an insect, and it's called the Lord Howe Island Stick Insect, mm. um, as the name suggests. It lives on Lord Howe Island. Um, <laughs> and it's a stick-like creature? And, and it is a stick-like creature. Oh, um, it often hangs out in Melaleuca trees. Um, and um, it's commonly and co- colloquially known as the land lobster. <laughs> the, mm. the land lobster? Yes, Is it, is yeah. it bright red or does it, it have... It, it, it's brownie, sort of a tawny... Oh, okay. Um, and it and it looks a lot meatier than the stick insects that you'd be familiar with. Yeah. I don't know if that's making you hungry. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm desperate for a stick insect right now. Yeah, a bit of <laughs> land lobster broad? Yeah. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I wonder if they taste as good as the, uh, the lobster. <laughs> well, I mean, they must have gotten that name um, from somewhere. So I can only imagine that they taste just as good as a lobster, maybe just a bit less meat on them. Um, but this I can't land, believe you're land talking lobster. about eating them. These guys have just come back from extinction. <laughs> <laughs> so, so fun, guys. Okay. They taste a delight, but no. Was that why they went extinct in the first place? We just ate well, too many of them. It, it, it wasn't, actually. Um, I'm sure it didn't help that they were given this delicious name. Um, <laughs> but they were, they were taken to extinction um, 
because in, in 1918, a ship ran aground on Lord Howe Island and all these black rats invaded the island. Mm. And two years after the ship ran aground in, in, in 1920, um, the Lord Howe Island stick insect uh, became extinct. So this rats pretty much just decimated the population and um, it was all over for our little land lobster. Which, as you can imagine, was pretty devastating for the locals, for the entomologists, especially those locals that liked using it either as um, bait <laughs> or their own food. Mm. Um, but everyone was um, suitably distressed that a that a um, rat could um, could take over this population so quickly. Uh, but then, eighty years later, in two thousand and one, a group of scientists visited a rocky outcrop just off the coast of Lord Howe Island. It's called Ball's Pyramid. Uh, now, this this is like, uh, this is a steep, craggy, massive rock. It's actually the world's tallest sea stack, and it has um, these cliffs that rise like 500 metres from the ocean. It's just this amazing ball of rock out in the middle of the ocean just off Lord Howe Island. Not a place that you would expect... Um, an endangered or extinct species to be. Mm. But on top of this rock, uh, this group of scientists found one Melaleuca tree where an entire population of the Lord Howe Island stick insects were living. Wow. And this entire population was only 17. So there was only 17 of these guys left. Mm. Um so once they made this discovery, they were obviously, you know, this this shook the entomology world. They were they were having parties across the world <laughs> um, after finding this um, new this Lazarus species come back to life. Um, and they very carefully transported four of the the Lord Howe Island stick insects to the mainland and um, have been undertaking a really successful breeding program both mm-hmm. in Sydney and Melbourne. So um, now we have more than 17 of them. We've probably, there's well over 200, maybe more. Um, but it's been so successful that they hope, once the rats are eradicated off Lord Howe Island, that the land lobsters can move on back in. Yeah. Yeah. So how are they going with that? Do you know about the rat population on Lord Howe Island? Um, are, are they getting rid of them? Well, there's there's been a couple of, um, different plans and methods that they want to try out um, to to actually get all the rats and you know including like baits and stuff like that. But they need to be aware of all the other animals that are on the island. I don't think there are any endemic mammals on the island that are just that um, that live on the island um, natively. Um, but there could be you know cats and dogs that also eat the bait, so they have to be pretty careful about that. Mm. Mm. But um, it's it's definitely high on their priority list because no one wants to visit an island that's just full of rats. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, stick insects are much much more attractive, and uh, they'll they'll exactly. lure the tourists in. Land lobsters mm. are just yeah yeah, <laughs> and that's mystical a great land lo- mystical land lobsters, especially because now they're considered to be the rarest insect in the world. <laughs> Amazing. And this idea of finding them up on this big rock with one Melaleuca tree and, and 17 of them. I know. I, I found that just absolutely phenomenal. Amazing. Yeah, it's, it, it's almost a fairy tale. Like, you know, the prince going to find the um, princess up in the 
up in the castle or like Rapunzel or something like that. Some, yeah, it's it's almost like a scientific fairy tale. Yeah, and hey, me. Claire, it begs the question: what what were these uh, people doing up on on the top of the island? I mean, they weren't going there to find the the land lobster, presumably. Well, well strangely enough, there had been um, some some colloquial reports from uh, rock climbers that they'd seen um, dead stick insects up there. Wow. So the scientists had a little bit of a clue. They hadn't they hadn't received any um, evidence, but they they had a bit of a clue that they could be up there. So <laughs> it was it was a search party. There you go. Yeah. They did very well. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, some fantastic news there. That is really a, a good news story, I suppose. Yeah, just being able to rediscover new things and you know that we haven't lost them forever, which is it's a great thing. I know everyone loves a good news story, especially when it comes to um, the animals, especially when it comes to strange animals as well. <laughs> Have you got any news on the dodo? Any news on the dodo? Mm. Dodo's dead, Ben. <laughs> no coming back from that. Yeah, just apart from the dodo sitting in front of me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's let let's try and focus our efforts on the ones that haven't um, been completely wiped out and are never coming back. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Well, thanks for taking us into the wild with um, the the new animal and the rediscovered old animal there, the vampire flying frog and the Lord Howe stick insect. Really interesting stuff, Claire. Um, that's my, my pleasure, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's good to have you in and uh, calling in from Sydney and uh, thanks for taking us into the wild. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX 98.3 FM. The time's now 12.08 and we're going to take a little break with a bit more music. This That was the Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain with uh, their great cover of David Bowie's Life on Mars. And... Um, Appropriately, um, because I chose it, it does lead into our next story, <laughs> talking about life on Mars. Um, not quite anyone living there yet, but there's the experiment going on called the Mars 500 at the moment, which is a uh, one-and-a-half-year virtual interplanetary flight experience to study the effects of a mission to Mars um, when they land on the red planet's surface. And it's it's a bit of um, uh, a psychology experiment, I suppose, in a lot of ways, to get an idea of what's actually going to happen when people travel to Mars. Um, because the flight to Mars isn't a short thing. Like, it actually takes uh, about uh, eight to nine months to get out there. Um, and the effects of uh, someone living in that sort of environment for for eight to nine months to get out and then eight to nine months to get back, so an 18-month round trip, um, could have some interesting effects. So what the the European Space Agency, ESA, have done is uh, they've decided to conduct their own experiment called the Mars 500, where they have six volunteers who are sitting in a uh, simulated uh, space shuttle. And uh, so they've been simulating the flight out to Mars. And very soon, they're about to reach their halfway point, which means they're almost virtually to Mars. Um, So nine months in. Nine months in, yeah. 520 days uh, 
Oh, that's the total amount of days. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Um, so they've reached, they've reached the point now where they're just about to land on Mars, and that means that three of the six volunteers, so not everyone gets to get out, only three of the six get to go into oh. a touchdown capsule after 244 days of the virtual flight uh, before moving out of their lander on their first spacewalk <laughs> on the Martian surface. Now, now, after flying all of those imaginary uh, kilometres, nine months in, Three of them get out. The other three have to stay mm. on the vehicle. Yeah, that's right. And and then once the other three have gone out for their walk and come back, all six have to sit in for another 250-odd days Gee. and uh, fly back to Earth. You'd want to stretch your legs properly, wouldn't you? Oh, definitely, definitely. I, well, I do presume they're not just sitting down with a seatbelt on uh, listening to the radio, playing on a spy. They, they can walk around in this... Well, aircraft. yeah, but it's it's not huge. I mean, there's the six volunteers. They're aged from mid-20s to late-30s. Uh, among them are engineers, doctors, and a physicist, and they're crammed into hermetically sealed modules just 20 metres long and less than four metres across. <laughs> it sounds like the start of a joke. There was a, an engineer, a geneticist, and a physicist. They were tucked into a hermetically sealed module. Well, wait until you hear this. There's a Russian, an Italian, a Chinese man, and then there's also a Frenchman and two more Russians. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it is really the start of a joke, I think. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's an amazing thing. They're in these modules imitating a Mars spacecraft. It's all at the uh, Moscow Institute of Biomedical Problems. Um, so they're not leaving Moscow. They can't make phone calls from no. this because that is what it's like um, on Mars. So it's a pretty um, thorough, real simulation. Mm. I mean, there's obviously still gravity and, and things like that that would be very, very yeah. different. But this, the point of this is a psychology experiment. Yeah. Or part of it. That's right. I mean, and there's even more thorough things like they do, like email and radio communication is allowed because they have that. Oh, of course. But it's a time delay um, because it's not instant from space to Earth. Ah. So that's all put on time delay. And well, as they get further and further virtually from Earth, the delay increases. That's right. That's right. And then they're also eating the same astronaut food in tubes that they'd eat on a real mission. Mm. So it's, it's pretty crazy stuff. Um Mm. So that's that's what's going to happen very soon. Is that um, two of the the Russians? Um, uh, sorry, I take that back. One of the Russians, Alexander Smoloyevsky, and Italian Diego Urbina, um, are going to don their spacesuits along with the Chinese uh, Wang Yu, and uh, they're going to don their spacesuits and exit the airlock for the first of three spacewalks onto the simulated Martian surface next to their capsule, and then they'll rejoin their colleagues um, who are uh, virtually in orbit around the red planet on February 27, and um, for around a month they'll carry out scientific experiments. So pretty amazing wow, stuff nice. going on. So what else do they do on the journey, do you think, besides a bit of, you know, I spy and... and you know, um, do they have tasks that they have to do or...? Well, there are the various experiments and that sort of thing. But to be honest, I don't know whether they do much more than that. Mm. Um, because, you know, there, there is a lot of monotony. There's close quarters. But, you know, reports are saying that the crew is highly motivated and enthusiastic. Uh, no one's suffering medical problems. Um, and, yeah, their ship's due to take off from Mars on February 23 and return to Earth sometime in November. Hmm. So pretty interesting. I actually remember when this came out because I um, 
I received various science communication emails and I received the email about this project. And I remember looking at it going, that would just be amazing. Um, unfortunately, uh, I think at the time you had to be a European uh, citizen of the European Union. Mm. Um, so we couldn't get in, unfortunately. But it just, it, I mean, imagine just spending 18 months doing that. that. That's your life for 18 months. It doesn't quite makes sense but yeah interesting stuff interesting stuff but another another story uh semi out of that uh that may kind of help with the whole traveling to mars is uh hibernation um because what animal hibernates best Mm, yogi bear yogi bear uh, yes that's right boo boo um <laughs> the hibernating bears so scientists have actually been studying bears um and, you know, the fact and what they do in their hibernation uh, to see if that can help uh, not only um, astronauts but also um, people who suffer major medical traumas like heart attacks and stroke, putting them in the coma and that mm. sort of thing. Um, this study looked at the, the black bears, Ursus americanus, um, and looked at how they lower their met- metabolic rate for five to seven months um, and uh, looking at the way things change. Um, what they did was uh, they looked at the bears um, and found that their metabolic rate dips lower than previously thought, slowing by 75%. But the bear's body temperature only fell 5 to 6 degrees. And in fact, one pregnant female maintained a normal wakeful wakeful body temperature throughout the hibernation period. Um, so so that sort of implies that fluctuating temperature cycles may not be favourable for embryonic development. Mm. So she had that constant in there. Um, And so a pretty interesting study. Um, (laughs) To do it, they actually um, had five American black bears who were captured uh, by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game because they were considered a nuisance to human populations. And so to to help the bears out, they recreated straw-lined dens like the ones used for hibernation and fitted them with infrared cameras. Um, Radio transmitters were placed on each bear to measure muscle activity like shivering. Um, And what they found was that the bears were breathing one to two times per minute Mm. And their heart rate slowed dramatically during hibernation, with sometimes as much as 20 seconds between beats. Pretty crazy stuff. Um, Bears also lost hardly any bone mass and only small amounts of muscle during that hibernation. So basically, even though they're, you know, immobile, stationary for five to six months, they've tricked their tissue, their bones, their muscles to think that they're still doing work. Mm. Now, scientists think that this could become relevant for deep space travel, because, you know, if the human race is ever going to leave Earth as a species, it might be necessary to induce, you know, a bear-like level of hibernation in order to make that trip into deep space possible. So these scientists are really quite interested in finding out the molecular signals for that and uh, find the drugs that could emulate those sorts of changes in humans. Mm. Well, as any sci-fi enthusiast would know, and, and in fact anyone who's seen Aliens or, uh, or Avatar, you know, this state of suspension is uh, is hugely desirable for uh, you know inter interplanetary and even intergalactic travel. Yeah, well, I always like the good old fifth element where they jump on the the plane for the flight and they just jump into their things, press the button, boom, they zonk out immediately. I think that would be a much nicer way to travel <laughs> rather than that those awkward twelve hours you get over international flights. <laughs> but anyway, certainly some interesting research there. Some uh, look, I, I'm. 
my thoughts are with those people on the uh, the Mars virtual mission, and I'm, I'm sure they'll be very interesting to see when they come out in November. We might be able to cover that again on Fuzzy yeah. and have a little look about what's actually happened there and um, whether bear hibernation might eventually help those astronauts too. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM 2XX, and uh, we're almost getting to the end of our show today. But to finish off, I thought I'd tell one last little story about a um, bit of chemistry that's uh, changing the paintings of Vincent van Gogh. Um, Van Gogh's got some brilliant uh, browns and yellows in in some of his paintings, um, especially the sunflowers, absolutely beautiful stuff. But some of those yellows in uh, his paintings are turning to brown, and it's been shown that this is actually a previously unknown chemical reaction causing this to occur. Because, of course, paints are chemicals. Like, there's a whole lot of different elements. Mate. Elements, that's a bad choice of words. There's a whole lot of different uh, chemicals that make up a paint. You've got your dyes, you've got your binder, you've got your solvent, a whole lot of different stuff. And it's the chromium yellow pigment, pigment um, that was used by Van Gogh in works such as his sunflowers that are taking on a, a brown discoloration under the influence of sunlight. Um, now, there's the interesting thing, though, is that the mechanism that caused the paintings to experience this uh, gave differing degrees of discoloration, and the reason why uh, remained a bit of a mystery. Um, scientists weren't too sure. So to, to work out what was going on, the scientists took out a microscopic piece of two paintings, uh, Banks of the River Seine and View of Arles with Irises, as well as paint samples taken from paint tubes used by early 20th century Flemish artist Rick Walters that had been exposed to UV light. And using the X-ray from the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility in France, uh, the researchers showed that uh, a reduction in chromium was especially prominent in the presence of chemical compounds which contained barium and sulphur. So this is a reduction in chromium, meaning that we're not oxidising it, uh, we're doing the opposite of that, reducing. Um, that, that's what my Year 12 chemistry tells me. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, basically the chromium ions were going through a reverse oxidation in the presence of sunlight. Uh, electrons were being taken from the paint's oil base and passed on to the chromium, uh, but only when... A second pigment, and this was uh, barium sulfate, which gives the white colour, was present. So it was only the yellow in conjunction with the white that gave this reaction. Hmm. Uh, and this observation led scientists to believe uh, that Van Gogh's technique of blending white and yellow paint might be the cause of, of this browning of his yellows. Um, Pretty amazing stuff. And look, the, the equipment that they used is, is pretty cool too because the X-ray beam at the synchrotron, 100 times thinner than human hair, and it's revealing subtle chemical processes over tiny, tiny areas. Um, and, you know, this, this is just the start of a whole new world of discovery for, you know, art historians and conservationists. There you go, some interesting stuff. A bit of science in the arts today and uh, lots of interesting things. That does... With that story, it brings us to the end of uh, Fuzzy Logic for another Sunday. Uh, we've been having a lot of fun. If you did enjoy today's show, then check out the podcast. Just jump onto iTunes and type in Fuzzy Logic, or you can go to the website fuzzylogiconn2xx.podbean.com, and when I get around to uploading it, you'll be able to listen to today's show all over again, or you can have a listen to some of our shows in previous weeks. 
Ben, it's been a pleasure to have you in this morning. Yeah, thank you very much for having us here, Brod. It's been fantastic. Yeah, and it, oh, look, I've had an absolute ball. It was great to get Claire in um, from uh, Sydney to talk about some of her wild things. And uh, we're going to have more science for you next week. It won't be me along, but you will have uh, someone else in the studio to give you your science on a Sunday. Thank you very much for listening, Canberra. This has been Fuzzy Logic.